Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Legi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Sophie Otiende, Chief Executive Officer of the Global Fund to End Modern Slavery. So we're going to be looking at a few angles here, but creating a survivor-led environment is a big part of the fund's work right now. And this means enabling those with lived experience to have space and use their voice and being mindful of the language that is used so that it is accessible to everyone, not just policymakers or academics, and appreciating the power dynamics between a funder and a beneficiary and the apprehensions that a former beneficiary may have in using their voice with confidence. So it's a multifaceted topic. And without further ado, Sophie, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you so much. <laughs> Excellent. Well, it's so good to see you. You're out there in Nairobi. I'm here in London. So we have uh, not too much time difference, which is a good thing. And you're the chief executive officer of the Global Fund, to end modern slavery. And that's probably a good starting point. Why don't we find out what the fund is all about? So I cannot speak about the fund and not speak about what it was versus what it is right now. Because I think uh, we have a history. The fund was established specifically to leverage government funding into this modern slavery space in order to, you know, of course, con combat modern slavery. And over the years, we received funding from uh, the U US government, from the UK government, from the Norwegian government, and implemented projects, over more than 11 projects in Southeast Asia, in East Africa, and we have an ongoing project in Brazil. Over the years after implementation, of course, we received a lot of feedback on what the fund was doing. And essentially last year, the board brought me in to specifically look at the direction of the fund as a result of feedback that we were getting that essentially we were not achieving the vision that the sector felt we were created to, to do. And so we sat down and reflected. And as a, as a result of several months of looking of research, getting feedback from survivor leaders, feedback from our partners, we have adjusted our strategy. And now the fund is focused exclusively on movement building, like catalyzing. We believe that the key thing message that we got from the feedback was that we are not going to be able to address this issue without mass consciousness. We're not going to be able to address this issue with if staying in a silo. And we're also not going to address this issue without engaging the people most affected by this issue which is people, grassroots organizations, and people with lived experience. Historically, this sector has not been done very well in doing that. So uh, part of our new strategy is really focused on how do we shift that and how do we make sure that we center people with lived experience as leaders of the movement, and not just that, also fund them and to make sure that, yeah, they're at the center. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, interesting time for you of transition and, and um, clarity of thought in terms of going forward. Let me ask you a two-folded uh, question. One is, 
um, regarding the, the the movement building, you know, what's the movement as it were in its nascent stages? What, what does that world look like right now? And I know I've had other guests on the show who, who we know, like Nick Grano from the, the Freedom Fund uh, and, and Gary Haugen uh, from IJM. Be interesting to know a little bit about what the landscape looks like. And then you touched on it about the sort of survivor-centric uh, side to it. So love to get a little bit of insight into how that engagement with those individuals who have lived experience is is coming along. Uh, so what, what does the landscape look like? I think one, and I think many people will admit to this, is that uh, the movement in the past hasn't had people with lived experience at the center. And that means that most of the policies, most of the programs were really defined by people who haven't experienced this issue. And it's really different. It's hard to explain to people most of the time how lived experience brings a different perspective. When you've experienced an issue, the perspective you have of that issue and how programs should be developed is quite different. Um, I that means that essentially a majority of the organizations, a majority of the policies were developed from the West, while a majority of the people who are affected from this by this issue were coming from communities like the community I come, the community I come from. So there's a difference in what should be prioritized in terms of like people with lived experience think different things should be prioritized while the people who are working on this are also thinking other things should be prioritized it come, when it comes to things like language. You know, what should we call this? What should we call that? So it's really the fundamentals of what I would say what a movement should incorporate is what because the people most affected were not included, what we have is something that has been holding us and I feel like has served its purpose. But uh, for us to make the kind of change that we want, I just feel like we need a different kind of approach. And that approach has to be has to be developed, has to be led by the people most affected by this uh, by this issue. And yeah, so uh, for me, I think also um, I would say in some ways I'm also a little bit biased <laughs> because I'm a, I'm also a survivor leader, so I I know I know what that exclusion feels like. I know what it feels like to be in a room full of people talking about your issue, an issue you understand, and none of the people really, everyone is talking about it as an observant, right? And yeah, it's really difficult to sit in this. It's it's really one of the most difficult things for any person who's gone through this issue to sit in rooms where something very, very personal to you is being discussed and you feel like people do not have a full understanding of what they're talking about. I can only imagine the the, the context that you're describing there, and it triggers a lot of questions. <laughs> One of them might be about that journey from experiencing a, a horrible setting and and gradually taking on a leadership role in this space. And And once you've done so, what does it entail and what is required to get others with that lived experience to join you and start 
having their voice voices heard. So that's one question. The other is, how do you reconcile perhaps the individual with lived experience versus someone who is talking about the subject matter, but as you pointed out, perhaps as an observer, perhaps as an academic, and the heart probably on the right track for both, but very different vantage points. And how do you how do you reconcile that? Because it's imagine it's not that easy to do. I start with the second question and then move to the last. Right. <laughs> But the yeah. second question is part of what uh, our our mandate right now and our strategy is focused, focused on, right? The idea, the DNA of our movement is that everyone brings their perspective to the table and somehow we put that together and then address, have a common vision and try and push for it, right? So I think one of the things that... I say when it comes to a movement, we need to understand that people with lived experience are centered. So they're centered, they lead. If you do not have lived experience, your role is to provide solidarity. And solidarity can look like what you're saying. You're an academic, you want to study this thing, but if you want to study it, how are you centering people with lived experience? How are you, how are you being led by them on what is required, what is needed, what is appropriate, right? What is not what is not harmful. And I feel like that's what's been missing is that people have not been centering and people have just been going on, you know, with good intention, have going been going on, you know, tasks to do that. So I think the need for the movement is to call everyone at the table and sort of say, right, all your all these things that you're trying to do, they're great, but they, they're not helpful if they're not centered on the people most affected by the issue. And then this is how teaching and giving tools on, this is how you show solidarity. Because if it's true that you have no, like your intention is good, then it means that what you're looking for is that you want to show solidarity. It's not about you. If it hasn't affected you, it's really not about you. And I think that needs to be the message. And sometimes it can come out a bit harshly, but this hasn't affected you very, very personally. It's really not about you. And how do you show solidarity if it's not about you? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's the first <laughs> part of the question. The second part is my, my, my journey. I think I... The reason why, again, I'm very passionate about like movement building, centering lived experiences as a result of my story. I was trafficked as a child, right? And I'm, unlike most survivors in this space, I'm very lucky that I come from a family that took care of me and then I did not have to receive services from the sector. And I say this because I feel like if I had received services from the sector, I do not think I would have the voice that I have just because of the power dynamics. When a survivor, when a person with lived experience receives you know, support from this space, and that's part of what needs to shift, right? That if we are really supporting, we're we are really supporting survivor leaders, it shouldn't feel like they, they can't speak up about what went wrong. It shouldn't feel like they can't, you know, uh, they 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 owe us owe us something, right? Like you are owed something because you took. And most of the messaging and most of the work that is done around this 
really, really put survivors as beneficiaries. And when you are a beneficiary of a service, it's not really a place of dignity. It's not. People want to make it seem like it is, but when someone poses it as I helped you, I supported you, the power they have over you is part of the reason why it's making it really, really hard to have more and more survivors come into leadership positions because they feel like they do not have the power to do so. And that is implied at when services are being provided. So I, as I said, I exited my experience. I was trafficked in a family setting. I had a very supportive family where my dad, my father believed me. We cut off the family member and I was supported all through through recovery. I come from a family where, again, I say I'm very, very privileged. I come from a family where values are so important, right? I come from my dad and my mom are always, always focused on what are your values and how you live in them. It doesn't matter what the person next to you is doing. Why are you not doing what you're supposed to be doing? And that was quite clear. And so when this happened to me, as a result of where I, ca- I come from, it, I just, it, it was rather automatic that I wanted to do something about it. And um, I was coming, but then we were living in a really, in really dire situations in a community that had a lot of need. I did not have language for what I went through which is the reality for most survivors, right? Is that the issue of modern slavery has been defined in such a complex way so that even the person who goes through it cannot possibly define what they've gone through. Like I spent years without a name for what I went through. I just knew that I had gone through something really, really terrible and I did not have have language for it until 10 years ago. I started working in the human rights space as a volunteer, as a community organizer, as an activist when I was 15. It's not until 10 years ago that I found language for this. And for me, that's a failure of the space that we've created. When... Uh, your issue is so complex so that the people who are affected by it cannot be able to participate, cannot be able to engage, and cannot be able to talk about it. I just feel like that's part of the problem. So 10 years ago, I met someone from uh, from an organization who then told me, oh my God, your story is actually human trafficking. Did you know it was human trafficking? And I was like, no, I did not. And then I actually quit everything everything that I, did, I was doing back then. And I told them, I want to volunteer. I want to really make sure that this happens. So it was for me, it was that. It was meet, meeting someone who's in the space who then told me that my issue is trafficking and then I joined. Otherwise, I would not have, I don't think I would have ever joined this space if it wasn't for that person. Again, because the issue exists in a silo. And then also it just, as I said, it's so complex. If you read the UN definition of trafficking, it will confuse you even. <laughs> like, I, and I, I, I challenge anyone to go and read the definition. Uh, it is very complex. It is for a social issue that affects the, the people that it does. Even just the narrative and definition is too complex. Yes. And in your case, it's sort of incidental or coincidence that 
a person happened to be speaking with you or you happened to be speaking with them and they they put forward the the possibility that here you are you were a victim of of human trafficking had it not been for that somewhat random experience we we may very well not be having today's conversation yes we we we, we would not be having this conversation because as i said i was already an established activist grassroots mobilizer on a different issue because by then i focused on child rights and I was also focusing on feminist movement building. So I would have completely gone in that direction and never said, you know, spoke about like what I was good. And no one ever, no one ever told me in all the years I worked, no one ever told me that, you know, what I had gone through was uh was trafficking. So yeah. Yeah. And even when I even when I read when I read the definition, it took some time before I could actually like put say okay this is what happened to me and so here is how it lines up the fact that it is so difficult for survivors to self-identify and that we the system actually requires that another person identifies so for for many crimes it's so easy for for people to identify themselves but for for this crime somehow a majority the story of many of the survivor leaders that I know that are my friends, it's not they did not self-identify. Somebody else had to tell them that this is the crime. In terms of your drive to create and, and facilitate a, an environment that's survivor-centric, let's touch on those two key things that I'm sort of seeing or hearing from you. One around language. And how do you go about, in practice, how do you go about helping those individuals who have suffered this to get up to speed with, with some sort of language that makes sense, that enables them to articulate what's happened and, and to have a voice? And also, the other side of that coin, how do you decomplexify the language that we might have in policy circles or academia so that it becomes something that someone who doesn't have a PhD can still grapple with and work with. And the other bit is around the power dynamics. So the language and then the power dynamics. How do you go about engaging with those individuals who have benefited, who have been beneficiaries, as you said, from state services or charities or NGOs, uh, who may, may feel as though there's a bit of indignity in having received these benefits, although there is no indignity, but so how do you bring them about and say, you know what, your voice matters as well. Uh, you, you need to speak up as well. Uh, so the language and the power dynamics, those are two things that I'm, I'm hearing from you and I'd like to explore. The language, I think one, <laughs> we, we are not going to get anywhere without getting more survivor leaders in to participate in the space. I would say that's the first thing. And asking ourselves what are the barriers that are what are the barriers that are limiting survivor leaders from, as you are, as we are saying, moving from a space of receiving services to a space of leading. And have we designed programs so that we can be able to do that? And the reality is right now at the space, most, most of the, most of the organizations that are there are really designed to provide services, uh, which are needed. Services, so to provide services for rehabilitation, 
of survivors. There are few programs that are focused on transitioning survivors from beneficiaries then into leaders and then them joining the work. So would have to rethink one, how we do service provision and how we end up transitioning them. There are survivor-led organizations that are trying, most of the organizations trying to do the leadership work, the inclusion work are survivor-led organizations. But the problem is most of those organizations are small. Most of those organizations are collectives, do not, do know. And to be able to get funding, to be able to do some of the work, there are structures that you need to have. So we, as our funder, part of what we are trying to do is also think how do we, how do we actually work with the setup that is there right now to ensure that funds get to survivor-led organizations, grassroots organizations, so that they can transition, you know, into uh, into a space where they can be funded more. But we can. I do not think that we can move without actually having more survivor leaders. Just bringing in more survivor leaders. The problem also with that has been that we've been doing a lot of tokenization, where it's a few survivors who are consistently speaking, consistently showing up, right? When we need to ask ourselves, why is it that the system, if you think about the women's rights movement, and I say this, what we have right now is as if if you went for, uh, if you went for a women's rights movement and then all the people that were there were not women. Like the people that were leading things, designing things were not women. Or if you went for a queer, uh, a queer thing and the people that were there were not queer people. Like it's really abnormal. And sometimes I, I wonder whether we've woken up to how abnormal it is that you enter a room where, you know, this issue is being addressed and more than 90, usually 98% of the people are not the people who are directly affected. I think that should be our first thought, is that how do we get as many survivor leaders as we can into rooms, into decision-making positions? I think that what GFEMS did, especially with me, was really uh, something to be commended. I did, it was unexpected for me too, but we need more survivors in leadership positions. We need more survivors helping organizations design programs. We need more organizations, you know, so, and not just as advisors, we need people to employ them. And that means creating creating more room. And in terms of, of, of what, what people can, I think with power, we can't move away from the issue of power dynamics without self-educating ourselves. And I think this is where I start talking about like values. And I start talking about, we start talking about things like power. I know that sometimes when you move in spaces like the one I'm in, we all assume that because all of us are trying to address modern slavery, we're on the same page. But the reality is that we are we, usually we are not. We come from different experiences. We have, we have different things when we come into a room and just a recognition of that, right? A recognition of what power do you have? And as a result, being careful when you say certain things in a room and knowing that they impact someone else very differently. So, and then 
we deal with power dynamics through inclusion, right? If we, if if a survivor is involved from the beginning when you are designing a program, when they receive the service, they're not going to feel indignified about it. They're going to feel like they own the process, like they were part of the process. So the power dynamics will, will be dealt with. I think my answer to most of your questions is inclusion, inclusion, inclusion. <laughs> Find the people that you're working with, bring them to the table, give them the tools to engage. Because as I've said, what the, the sector, the system that we've created is such that people don't even have the tools to engage. So the question is, for example, if I'm working with survivor leaders from Nepal and we are designing a policy, that survivor leader possibly doesn't speak English. How do we de- how do we make sure they engage? How do we make sure that that they, their feedback and everything is included in let's say what we are going to speak at, we are, what what we will discuss at a UN meeting? That's how far we have to think. Um, I tell everyone, most of my colleagues, I say I say if you have if you are an organization and your programs do not are not designed in such a way that a survivor can become a CEO, a survivor can become a treasurer, like all those things, then we still we are still not there yet. So for me, the goal has to be that when I leave this position, that our system as the fund has is designed in such a way that a survivor who's received services can become a CEO. If we haven't done that, then we are not doing what we are supposed to do. So for me, the answer is inclusion, inclusion, inclusion. Inclusion, <laughs> inclusion, inclusion. Yes. From from your experience, uh, what you've witnessed so far, and, and you used to, I think you at the start of our conversation, you mentioned, well, this might sound a little bit offish, but you know, we don't mean it like that. It's just you need to pay attention to individuals who have lived experience and and if you haven't had that then you're you're necessarily coming into it into it from a, from a different vantage point how receptive or or otherwise are you finding these big uh north american foundations big european foundations uh different um, bodies at the un uh, how receptive are you finding them to what you're advocating for right now, right here, about survivor-centric environment, and uh, and how is the pendulum moving? In other words, perhaps they weren't so receptive as they are today, or perhaps they might be more receptive to more than they are today. I don't know. I think people are receptive, right? And I've had, I mean, like, let's say our close friend, like Nick, right? Nick is someone who is an ally, right? And Nick, of, then that's Nick Grana from the Freedom Fund. Nick, yeah. Yes, Nick Grana from the Freedom Fund is someone who is not someone who is uh, experienced and uh, seeing, for example, the shift of the Freedom Fund over the years, right? As we as we've engaged and had conversation on some of the work that is currently being done by Nick and Amy, who who joined the team a few years ago. And some of the work that they're now focusing, for example, the initiative around the Survivor Leadership Fund is commendable, right? Because it means that people are shifting. So I think people are receptive. I think the biggest question is, which is what 
I love. The biggest question is how do we do this, right? We, 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 we agree that this is not right. The biggest question is how do we do this? How do we, how do we provide practical materials that are objective to help organizations, to help decision makers do the, the meaningful inclusion work. And I feel like that's what uh, we want to do. We want to focus on it's getting this like practical tools to people. It's like, because I don't think this needs to be like an accusation, us versus them thing. It needs to be here, let's come to the table and this is what we can do. Mm-hmm. And I feel like uh, in some cases, sometimes that's what's missing because just telling people something is wrong and not providing, you know, a roadmap of how it can be fixed can be quite, yeah, it's not helpful. Yes, yes, yes. Now, you you, you use the word tools, I think. Um, mm. I know you developed some sort of toolkit, I guess you would say, in order to, to try to drive this forward. Give us a little bit of insight into that side of things and how this toolkit, these tools, are are able to benefit individuals and 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 improve the overall uh, state of affairs. Yeah, when I took over last year from GFM, so one of the things I'm a teacher. My background is is that I teach, <laughs> so it's so important. One of the things I know is that people learn by doing rather than you know by you. Uh, telling them. So it's really important for me as we implement this new strategy that GFEMS actually shows the work by doing. So one of the things that we did was just an analysis of all our whole organization from top, what are our hiring practices, communication practices, pro program practices, and do we how are we doing as far as meaningful inclusion of lived experience, people with lived experience is concerned. And that, that process was very, because when you put a mirror in front of yourself and then you notice that the very things that you are talking about, they are also on you, was a very interesting learning <laughs> process for us as an organization. So looking at the different ways that we've, We've, we've not included people that we failed and really, and because it was such a learning experience, we worked with the National Survivor Network because we wanted survivor leaders to be the one, people with lived experience to be the one to tell us, you know, exactly where we've gone wrong as far as this issue is concerned and where we've gone right. So we documented that whole process and developed a toolkit because we, we thought it was such an eye-opening process for us and we thought, you know what, maybe organizations might need something like this. So it's a toolkit that includes like definitions and a discussion around the fact that uh, meaningful engagement and inclusion is a continuum as, as, as opposed to an event, right? So that if you don't need to worry, there are different stages that you can go through and different ways that you can work on this. And then it has like assessment tools that you can take with your team and measure where you are and basically then map out a roadmap on how you can shift things. So we needed it to be as practical as possible and we are sharing it out. And it, of course, anyone who's interested, just reach out to our team. We're really happy to have a conversation about this. Excellent. Now on that specific point, uh, someone who's interested in finding out more about the toolkit or just more broadly about the Global Fund to, to End Modern Slavery, 
Um, what's the website address? Where should I go? www.gfunds.org. Great. Now, before, before we do wrap up, I'd love to ask you for a key takeaway. And perhaps I already might know what, what's coming. But what, what's that one thing that you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode, Sophie? I think for me, one of the key things is that I feel that our issue, especially modern slavery, has really for the longest time, as I said, been complex. And it's felt like very an issue that doesn't affect all of us. Well, this issue affects all of us. Affects All of us are contributing to this issue in one way or, the, or another. If you're wearing clothes, if, you're, if you have a phone, if you know, if you are eating food, the food on your table, the, you need, we need to ask questions. The whole world that we live in basically was built on forced labor. You know, our economy as we know it is a product of forced labor. So all of us should really be thinking about, as we are thinking about new economies and new ways of thinking, we should ask ourselves whether we want, when people look back in history, whether we want people to say that the foundation was of, you know, was built on blood. That's fine. <laughs> For, and if your answer is no, I actually want an economy that works, that thinks of people and that centers people, then you are the exact person that I, I need in our movement. Whether you have lived experience or not, you are the exact person that I need. I've been talking about inclusion, 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 and that means that's a word for everyone. I want to welcome you to our issue and to tell you that it actually affects you and we want to find ways to include you to raise your voice about it. Inclusion, inclusion, inclusion. Sophie, thank you very much uh, for joining me and joining us on the Do One Better podcast today and for sharing uh, your experience and your work and your aspirations. It's, um, it's a pleasure to have met you and to have learned from you as well. Right, thank you so much. This was, this was fun. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Sophie Otiende, Chief Executive Officer of the Global Fund to End Modern Slavery. For information about this conversation and more than 200 other case studies and interviews with remarkable thought leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. Thanks so much for tuning in and I'll catch you this coming Monday.